Happy Christmas and welcome to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Every fortnight we bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening. Growing your own fruit and vegetables, plant care, pest control, garden design and container ideas. Plus expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden now. I'm Tony Dickerson, one of the RHS's team of horticultural advisors. Coming up in this edition, we visit the RHS Lindley Library to find out about some of the gardening books that have become bestsellers. We look at how to encourage more wild birds into your garden and look after them through the cold winter months ahead. And news on RHS garden events this winter across the UK. One of the lesser known, if not quite hidden gems of the RHS is our Lindley Library in London. The library holds unique collections of early printed books on gardening, botanical art and photographs. It also holds the archives of RHS and personal archives of notable gardeners and garden designers. It contains a vast number of gardening magazines and periodicals and an extensive range of 20th century gardening books. It's a fabulous place for garden lovers to while away a few hours, indulging their horticultural passions away from the winter weather. Plus, RHS members can take books out on loan to read at their leisure in the comfort of their own armchairs. We visited the library recently to hear about some of the stars of the collection, the manuals that changed the way we garden, and the ways we've thought about gardening through the centuries. Hello, my name's Fiona Davison and I'm the Head of Libraries and Exhibitions at the Lindley Library in the RHS and we're here at Vincent Square today uh, in the basement uh, which is why sometimes you'll probably hear a lift as people are coming and going um, in the London branch of the Lindley Library. I'm going to talk about gardening bestsellers and this was prompted by the fact that very recently Jekka McVicker celebrated the millionth sale of her book The Complete Herb Book um, and it's quite rare for gardening books to hit a million sales. It's been in print for 20 years and Jekka had a party with us at the Lindley Library because she's a big supporter of the library, uses us a lot in her research and at the party we got out some books to show Jekka which company she was in, which other authors have sold a lot of books. Now as you go back in history it gets harder to talk about sales figures and print numbers so we'll be mostly talking about books that we know were in print for a long time rather than numbers of sales because we just don't know when you go back in time. So when books have been in print for a long time or sold a lot that means we can talk about them being influential and having influenced a large number of gardeners and having shaped how we think about gardens Um, Not just how we practically garden, but fashions and tastes and what's important. It's all wrapped up in these practical gardening books. So the first one we'll look at takes us right back to 1557. And we're going to Germany. It's published in Frankfurt. And it's by a German botanist called Adam Lonitzer. And the Latinized version of his name was Lonicerus, which gives us Lonicera, which is the... Latin name for honeysuckle. So he's immortalised in our gardens as honeysuckle. And this book, which I'll show you, is Krutterbuch, which means it's German for herb book. I'll describe it to you. It's, um, it's about 14 inches, 20 centimet- 25 centimetres long, um, about 15 centimetres, 10 inches wide. And it's dark black leather with a big metal clasp. It looks like something from Harry Potter, which, as I'll explain later, is quite appropriate. It's It's been through a lot in its time. It's quite battered and, and craggy looking, which just a- adds to its atmosphere. 
Now, the reason this is such a um, influential book is it was in print for over 230 years. Uh, there were um, 21 versions of it. Hugely influential, important book. It's a type of book called a herbal, which means it largely concentrates on the medicinal properties of plants, which in the days before uh, doctors and professional health care, you had to be your own chemist. You know, every home would have to make its own remedies and medicines. So it was really crucial to know which plants would cure you and which plants could kill you. And it helped... Lonitzer that probably, as well as it being a very useful book, it probably helped that he married the daughter of his publisher. Um, so that meant that at the publisher's desk, he, death, he took over the business. That probably didn't hurt. The other reason it sold so well was it was relatively cheap. Um, books are hugely expensive um, in the 1600s. And so this book being relatively cheap, very comprehensive, and also a really attractive mix of the practical and the fantastical. So what you'll find in Lonitzer in, in the Crutter book is references to things like the barnacle goose, which is a um, story of a goose which apparently was born out of rotting wood, which would, you'd find floating in the sea. The other thing, and the reason why I mentioned Harry Potter, is there's a reference in here to a bazaar. And a bazaar is a real thing. It's a, it's a stone which develops in animals' stomachs from undigested matter. And it is recounted in this book and believed for hundreds of years that this stone would be an antidote against all poisons. And you'd pop it in a glass and then anything you drank couldn't poison you. And indeed, Elizabeth I carried a gold-plated bazaar around with her to protect her from poisoners. Uh, Napoleon was given one as a gift, to, as a remedy, and it's mentioned in the Harry Potter books. Uh, so this book being this mix of things we can recognise today, practical properties of plants um, and things like distillation, practical skills you would need, but also this kind of mystery and magic and things from the exotic. That's why it was so popular for so long. The thing that's really attractive about this book to us today, of course, is that it also carries uh, wonderful illustrations, woodcut illustrations. Now, on one level, um, they're not very impressive because we know they were plagiarised from a number of books. They, they were copies. In fact, the original publisher was, was prosecuted for it, but it didn't stop him. He carried on. They're also hand-coloured, and you can get a bit sniffy about the quality of the colouring. They're quite um, crude, but they're really attractive to us now because they give an insight into you know the world in the 15, late 1500s. When you used to buy a book in those days, you would buy it unbound. You would buy a sheath of papers from uh, the publisher and it would be up to you to bind it and it would also be up to you as the book owner to arrange for it to be coloured. And that means that each book from, from this kind of date is unique because it was down to the personal taste and the contacts of the person who bought the book. The one in the Lindley Library, which I'm <clears throat> holding today, is quite crudely coloured, but I think that adds to its charm. So the second book I'm going to talk about, we're now moving from Germany to England, and this is The Gardener's Labyrinth. And this was written by a man called Thomas Hill, although for this book he operated under the much more impressive alias of Didymus Mountain, which is a play on his name, so from hill to mountain. And 
This is published, the edition I've got here uh, was actually published in 1586, but the first edition was published in 1577, but it was in print for nearly 100 years. The last edition was 1660. So again, another very long-lived book. And this book's claim to fame is that it's believed to be the first practical gardening manual in English. Uh, so this is kind of contemporary with Shakespeare, um, and it is a practical gardening manual. He says in the beginning, in the frontispiece, this is based on 40 years of practical experience of the art of gardening, and that really does shine through. Thomas Hill, we don't know a lot about him, unfortunately. We know he was a jobbing translator and astrologer, wrote lots of pamphlets on everything um, just to, to, to make a living. But he really seems to have found his feet when we come to gardening. He wrote two very popular books, The Art of Gardening and then this, The Gardener's Labyrinth. And what's attractive about this is that you will recognise when you read it the long-lasting and continuing truth of what he's writing about because it is based on practical knowledge. So he tells you how to test the quality of your soil by rubbing it between your fingers. If it sticks to your fingers, it's a clay soil. If it crumbles, it's sandy. And then what to do uh, with that knowledge? He tells you how to lay out a labyrinth. Um, the reference to labyrinth in the title is not just about these the, these blueprints for labyrinths, it's also about the idea that you're working your way in through this book, through to secrets, that you follow the labyrinth till you get to the secrets. So that was a really nice kind of little publishing wheeze. He talks about secrets at the beginning. Uh, again, really nicely illustrated with woodcuts. The publisher was a very um, savvy businessman because what he did, you can see when you look through the book, he's used the same woodcut and literally chopped it. Uh, so you focus on different sections through the book. And Thomas Hill did the same with the text. He literally cut and pasted almost from older sources. So you'll find lots of references from writers like Pliny, just literally word for word translated and then reused again. So it's a very repetitive read, but it clearly went down well. It's in print for over 100 years and it's a practical gardening book, which would have been useful to the Elizabethan and Stuart housewife. You can find the images from the books discussed by the head of collections, Fiona Davison, on the RHS website. Fiona will conclude her discussions of the best-selling gardening books in the next gardening podcast on the 8th of January. The Lindley Library is open again in 2015 from the 5th of January. But be sure to visit the Lindley Library at the RHS Garden Wisley from the 2nd of January, at the RHS Garden Harlow Car from the 7th of January, and the RHS Garden Hyde Hall Reading Room from the 2nd of January, and not forgetting the RHS Garden Rosemore from the 12th of January. I'm Tony Dickerson, and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. If all the festive food and relaxation has left you craving some fresh air, there are plenty of activities to enjoy during a visit to our four RHS gardens. Here's some of the attractions and events coming up. Visit RHS Garden Rosemore on the 15th of January from 11am to 12.30pm for a rose pruning session. This is a comprehensive demonstration that will cover the pruning and training of all roses, from climbers through to ramblers, shrubs and modern varieties. We'll also look at the nutrition and disease control and offer some handy tips on establishing roses. Fancy a winter walk and talk with the creator of the RHS Garden Wisley, Colin Crosby? On the 16th of January from 1pm to 3pm, 
You can learn about the plants that put on a show at this time of year and what to look out for in the coming months. And, as always, full details of all these events and more on the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens what's on. One of the many benefits of RHS membership is free entry to all four RHS gardens. Members also get discounted and priority tickets to RHS events and flower shows, such as the RHS Chelsea Flower Show, free personal advice on gardening matters from our expert team, and much more. If you're not already a member and we're not lucky enough to receive a gift membership of the RHS this Christmas, why not find out more about its benefits? Just go to rhs.org.uk forward slash join. One garden activity you can take part in from the comfort of your living room this winter is helping with the RHS's research into weather-tolerant plants. We're asking gardeners to identify plants in their own gardens that have coped with the extremes of very wet and very dry weather by completing a survey from our RHS gardening advisors. Our advice team is hoping to increase its knowledge of how home gardeners plant difficult sites and the plants that they've found are best equipped to thrive under flood and drought conditions. Data from the Met Office indicate that the UK is expected to see more frequent milder wetter winters and hotter drier summers in the future, so the need for such information will become increasingly important. This project has been led by my colleague from the advice team and familiar voice to regular podcast listeners, Jenny Bowden. The climate does seem to be changing. We do seem to be seeing um, more extreme weather events. So uh, over the past few years, we've seen extremely uh, wet conditions in many areas of the country. And then it seems that the soil is drying out to extreme conditions in the summer as well. So we don't actually have much information um, uh, among the archives uh, in the RHS or on our web pages. We, we have lists already of plants which tolerate wet soils and those that tolerate dry soils. And there's obviously a certain amount of research you can do at your desk to find out people's views about this topic. But it's actually getting out there and asking people what they think from all over the country. It's not exactly a scientific experiment because people's opinions can vary quite a lot. It can be quite subjective and it's not statistically sound because there are so many variables, uh, whether the plants are in the sun, whether they're in the shade, how cold it got when they got wet and for how long they were dry in the summer. So there are many, many different variables, but we're hoping to build up patterns. We're hoping that people are going to come back repeating the same plants and there are various suspects that we've already got in mind, which we would expect people to to come up with. Um, amongst those, uh, we hope to confirm that geraniums and daylilies are very tolerant. But we really want to extend it and hopefully build up a list of plants. That would be the ideal. Um, and so we're relying on the gardeners at the coalface, as it were, to tell us what they notice as being tolerant in both sets of conditions. Jenny Bowden, if you'd like to contribute to the RHS research into weather-tolerant plants, you can submit your observation via our short survey. See rhs.org.uk forward slash gardening in a changing world. During the cold winter months, many gardeners and wildlife lovers are concerned about how best to keep the birds happy and healthy. To feed or not to feed? That is often the question. RHS advisor and wildlife expert Helen Bostock has some suggestions about how you can encourage and look after the wildlife in your garden. 
Christmas is a fantastic time for getting out into the garden. Let's face it, after you've eaten an entire Christmas dinner, you probably don't want to go much further afield. So get out there. Your garden wildlife is really easy to see um, at this time of year because the leaves are off the trees and the deciduous shrubs. And you'll get to see even shy ones like bullfinches and winter thrushes. And of course, don't forget the good old robin. Bullfinches are more likely to see perhaps in more suburban and rural gardens. The males are really quite flashy. The winter thrushes, they too have a bit of um, interest. Red wings in particular, because they've got a flash of red when they fly off um, just under their wings. Fieldfares is another type of winter thrush that um, you'll get to see in many gardens in the winter. A little bit more drab, a bit more like your, your garden thrush. And of course, I think most people... Uh, will recognise robins. Did you know, though, that it's both the males and the females have got the lovely red breast? I sometimes get asked, should we be feeding garden birds or not? Is it, is it good for them? And I think the answer to that is that, yes, it is. Um, it's definitely worthwhile. First of all, we get to see them at really close quarters and there's nothing quite like enthusing people, particularly if you've got family and children around at Christmas, by actually seeing them right up close to the house. If you've got window feeders, you, you can see them almost, you know, in your living room. There is a slight worry, though, because if we're going to encourage birds to get into a one spot altogether, um, there can be an increased risk that they'll spread diseases. So easy way to avoid that is just to regularly clean out your bird feeders and your water um, fountains and things. Um, you can get proprietary cleaners these days just to do it or make up a, a very weak solution of bleach and then rinse it. Um, the other thing is if food starts to go mouldy in the feeder, just don't put out quite as much next time. It's also a good question about, you know, is it benefiting our garden birds to um, be doing winter feeding and in fact year-round feeding? Um, studies have been a little bit ambiguous in the past, but there is a recent study about black caps that has been done by the BTO, the British Ornithological Society. Um, and that sh suggests that certainly for that species, winter feeding of our overwintering black caps is definitely beneficial. OK, so black caps are a really iconic bird. They weren't so common um, not that long ago, but are increasingly so, especially in the winter. They're migratory bird um, that looks a little bit like a large house sparrow, but very distinctive in having the males have got a black head, the females have a sort of chestnut brown one. Now, because they migrate, they're normally summer visitors, and those that come for the summer fly down to places like Spain and North Africa. However, increasingly, we're getting in um, migrants, birds, from Europe. So, particularly Germany. Um, it looks as though blackcaps like to take their winter holidays in the UK. So, if you see them in the winter, that's where they're from. And they are becoming an increasingly common garden bird. They've got an absolutely beautiful song, so you might hear them before you see them. But, um, yeah, look out for that, that distinctive black or, or chestnut brown head. It won't be anything else. It also suggests that other declining species, such as house sparrows, can benefit from it. So there's no more reason to get out there. You know you're doing something good.
when you're sighting your feeders and you might have been lucky enough to be given a bird feeder for Christmas, um, just think a little bit about where you, you're going to put it up. Don't put it right in the very open middle of a garden because uh, birds do like to have somewhere where they can easily get to the feeder and then come away because it's it's quite a vulnerable position for birds to be in. But equally, don't push it right up against, let's say, a, a hedge or somewhere or a wall because, again, cats might be lurking um, at the base of it or, you know, round the corner and can easily get at them. So the optimum place is probably about um, a metre or two away from a hedge or a, a nice garden shrub, something like that. So just what should we be putting out? Well, I've got some five, I think, top items for feeding your garden birds in winter. The first and most important one is fat. Now, don't start putting out your leftover fats from your Christmas dinner. That can get all mattered into birds' feathers. Instead, much better to either buy some fat balls or why not have a go at making your own? It's really easy. All you have to do is get yourself some uh, beef suet. You melt that down and pour it into a mould, like an, an empty yoghurt pot or something. And then once it's um, cooled down, that'll set solid. You, Whilst it's liquid, if you wanted, you could pack it with goodies, such as peanuts or um, raisins. And then once it's set, just tip it out of the mould and put it out, dangle it maybe from a garden tree or your bird table. The other thing that you might like to do is put out peanuts. These two are naturally high in fat, so great for uh, beefing birds up over winter. If you put these out in a mesh feeder, you'll be delighted to see things like nut hatches and great spotted woodpeckers will come. I mean, children get really excited when the woody woodpecker arrives. Of course, it's still a good time to be putting out seeds, so that's my third food. And if you put out niger seed, which is a tiny little black seed like a, a sunflower seed, you'll probably get goldfinches. Um, now, this is one for the not-so-squeamish mealworms. If you can bear to put out live ones, so much the better. But if not, don't worry. You are catered for because you can get dried mealworms these days. These are fabulous for things like robins and blue tits. And lastly, but not least, my fifth top um, tip for feeding garden birds in winter is use up those stale mince pies. We'll all get a bit fed up of them by the end of Christmas. So don't just throw them out, crumble them up, pop them on the bird table and share your Christmas with them. You'll get things like dunnocks and robins and wrens joining the feast. So yeah, that's a really good way to, to use them up. Helen Bolstock. You can find more tips and advice on the wildlife gardening pages of the RHS website. That's rhs.org.uk forward slash wildlife. So that's all for the Christmas edition. We'll be back in 2015. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Tony Dickerson and all the RHS Gardening Podcast team, goodbye and Happy New Year. <laughs>